How do we grow? What takes us from simply reading and listening to moving and doing? Into a roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty kind of walk, driven by a desire to grow in grace and humility, digging in faith and on good soil, implanting his word in our hearts, waking up to life on the other side, where peace-loving wisdom resides, persevering through trials and temptation, through death and destruction, giving life-breathing water through action and deed, letting it soak in and take deep root in every aspect. That kind of doing changes us. It leads us into true faith, true faith that produces good fruit and changes who we are in Christ, driving us to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, to lead with love and give to others generously with mercy, causing us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. It is so good to see you, those of you here in Bellingham. I can see you face to face. Those of you in Skagit, trust that you're there. It's good to have you uh, with us again today. Those at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton and watching online, thanks for being here. And this is the seventh of week of our series, Doers, as we've been looking in the book of James. And I'll remind you again that what we're doing on the weekend services just kind of skips across the top of a few highlights of this book. We want you to be reading this on your own. We want you to be studying this on your own, discussing it in small groups, asking questions finding great insights and what I might challenge you with is a couple things in the next few weeks as we finish out this series is that you would take a moment because so often in the weekends we'll, we'll look at a verse or a passage and it's easy to do that but maybe we miss the context of the whole book Remember, this was written not with chapters and verses. This was just a letter. It was a one document. And I might challenge you in the next couple weeks to spend some time at least once to just read it front to, to, to back. It's, it's only like four pages in your Bible. Read the whole thing as one whole document and so you can see it that way. Another challenge I want to give to you is one that I gave about five or six weeks ago, and that is to invest about eight minutes. If, uh, if you will Google these three words, read Scripture James. Just Google those words, not now preferably. Uh, but if you'll Google those three words, it will pop up a little video, an eight-minute video, amongst other things. But the eight-minute video is what I want to point you to by the great folks in Portland called The Bible Project, and it gives an eight-minute overview of this book, and it helps you just kind of see, oh, I see how this all fits together. Now, if you're taking notes on our app, if you're on the sermon notes on our app, you'll notice on today's notes up in the little right-hand corner, there's a thing that says James, a little video. You can just push that, and it will take you right there if you're using the app. Now, if you decide to, to watch this during the sermon, would you please use earbuds so as to not disturb those around you? But it's a great eight-minute overview, highly recommended. Even if you saw it five or six weeks ago, go back, watch it again to see it in its context. We've been looking at this book of James. James was the brother of Jesus. He was the, the bishop in the Jerusalem church. He was one of the prominent authoritative voices and leaders of the early church. And what's amazing about James is while he writes this letter and while he makes great uh, impact in the early church, and while he was the brother of Jesus, he never pulls out like the bro card. Like, you know, Jesus was my brother after all. He never does that. We don't find that anywhere. What I find interesting is there's someone else that pulls out the bro card, not with Jesus, but with James. In the book of Jude, this little, little one chapter book in the end of your Bible, Jude uh, writes this. Jude 
or Judah, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. He's like name dropping, my big brother. James is the bishop that kind of gives him some extra credibility to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Notice some of the same themes James writes about. Some of the same themes that Jesus talks about. And as we've seen this, I don't know for, for James and, and for, for Jude and for the other brothers of Christ how much they were exposed, how much they participated in, how much they observed of Jesus' life, but his teachings come through in their teachings. And we, as we've seen that even last week, the Beatitudes, so prevalent in those verses that we looked at last week. And today we're going to again see how the influence of the teaching of Jesus impacted what James said to this early church, to these Jewish followers of Christ who had been persecuted, who as he wants them to grow deeper, we see these themes of Jesus where Jesus would pray in John 17, that high priest prayer, that the followers of Christ would be one, they would be unified. We see that same theme come through. In Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus said, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me, take my yoke upon me, learn from me because I am gentle. And he says, and I am humble of heart. And we see that theme come through again and again today as well, this humility that brings about the grace of God. I don't know if you remember in the, uh, the very first Back to the Future when uh, Doc is talking to Marty McFly about how this, this DeLorean works. And he types in December 25th, 0000. Like, you wanna go see where Jesus was born? It'll be a great deal. I don't know if you've ever thought about how nice it would be to have a DeLorean so that you could go back and be a part of the, the ministry of Jesus, be a part of the early church, be a part of what was happening in the book of Acts. And I think there are times I'm like, oh, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been a part of that. But if we would, were able to go back I think maybe our romanticized view of what it would be like to be a part of that first century New Testament church would be shattered. Because if we were a part of that early church, we would undergo incredible hardship and persecution. This is what the recipients of this letter had gone through. They had been persecuted. Some of them had lost their lives or their loved ones. They had been scattered about. And James writes in this letter that New Testament church was fraught with all kinds of issues, all kinds of difficulties. There was heresy and false teachers that would come and go. You read about that as, the, as, the, as Paul and others would, would say, you've got to take care of these false teachers that would come in. If you read the book of Corinthians, there was unbelievable immorality in the church. It's like, come on, you guys, let's, let's get this straight. We're, we've been redeemed by Christ. There were these power struggles, power struggles between different leaders. There was tension. There was all these factions. There was groups. There was the Jews and there was the Gentiles, males and the females. There was the law and the grace and all these issues that went about. And then there was relational tension, sometimes relational tension in the leaders of the church, the very apostles themselves. Sometimes there was relational tension between certain groups within the church, and sometimes there was relational tension between different individuals, and you see those things addressed at times. And I think there's probably this, this sense of this church as being uh, this beautiful bride of Christ, and yet it's destroying itself with all this tension, and James addresses this. It's like he's pulling his hair out. Remember, James had the nickname James the Just. James the Righteous, that there was something about his moral character that he would be given that moniker. And he's looking at this church, he's like, come on, brothers and sisters, why are you doing this? And so, and so he, he's just, if you were here last week, he's just come off this, this whole concept of how we are to live. You say you've got wisdom, you say you have understanding, then show it by the beautiful life, the good life that you live, by the deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom, because, here's a little quiz, 
Because wisdom is not proved by the answers you give. Wisdom is proved. Man, I, you don't know what that just did for me. You're dismissed. Uh, you, I have just received my Christmas present. That wisdom is not proved by the answers you give. It's, re, it's proved by the life that you live. And he said this life, this godly life, this, this wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then it, it, it's considerate. And, and, and it's full of, full of mercy and good fruit. And it's submissive. And it's impartial. And it's sincere. He says that's the life. And this is where we're going to pick up, right where we left off last week. And at chapter 3, verse 18, he says this. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, in the midst of this church where there's all this tension and all this fighting, all this backbiting, all this gossip, all this slander, all this power struggle, he says we are called to be peacemakers. Remember, when James writes this, writes this, he doesn't write with chapters and verses. He doesn't say, okay, that's the done, that, finally, chapter three is done. Let's go on with chapter four. This is a continuation. It's the continuation of the thought that we started looking at last week. And this is where we're going to pick up today in James chapter four. And in this, as he's doing this, he, you see this, this, like this father's heart that he loves these people. He wants them to grow in maturity. He wants them to, to strengthen the, the foundation of their faith. And yet, there's times when there's some necessary prophetic voice. And so he speaks some strong words to them. And while he talks to this, uh, this group of people roughly 1,960 years ago, you begin to realize how relevant and applicable it is to our lives in 2018. And as he does this, he's not only speaking to them, but as we look at it today, we'll see that he's addressing like a key problem in our lives. And, and I think this is so crucial for us as we're going into this season, that we're going into the holiday season, which is a wonderful time of year. It's a great time of celebration. But there can also be some tension. There can also be some stress. There can also be anxiety. There can also be gatherings of family that come together maybe only once a year by design. Because they come not only for the meal, but they come with their personalities, and they come with their opinions, and they come with their mouth, and they come with their spouses, or their boyfriends, or their girlfriends, and they come with all of these things, and it's like this petri dish for conflict within the family. So what we look at today, I think, is applicable not only to this audience from almost 2,000 years ago, but from us today, how we would live these, these lives of, of, of wisdom that are deep in our faith. Chapter four, verse one, he starts this way. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, you can just think about even your, some family gathering that, that you've heard about. <laughs> Not your family, the other families that you've heard about. And if you were to ask, you know, what causes the quarrels and fights, we would be really quick to start pointing to circumstances and situations and then specifically to individuals. Well, if he wasn't always and she ought to be more of, and, and you can just fill in the blank. You know, he's so, whatever, she's so, just figured out, bossy, mean, opinionated, arrogant, judgmental, mean-spirited, uh, passive-aggressive, overly sensitive, whatever it might be, and we just point it, that's why there's all this tension, that's why there's conflict, that's why there's arguments, and, and, and they're so, they're so closed-minded, they're so liberal, they're so Republican, they're, they're so Democrat, whatever it might be, they always, they never, and we point at everyone else and say, that's why there's all this conflict. If everyone was more like me, we'd all get along, it'd be great. And we point that, listen, it's not just with families at Christmas gatherings. 
This is like the human condition. This started in our childhood. Any of you have brothers and sisters growing up? Mom, dad, and there it starts. He touched me, she's staring at me, he stuck his tongue out, she's copying me, he came in my room, she crossed the line in the back seat, all that, he started it, she's this and that, and parents get to this point where they say, I don't care what's going on, I don't care who started it, I'm stopping it, it's gotta be done. This is so childish. And I think James gets to this point as he's looking at these people that he loves, He's like a spiritual father to them. He sees this bickering, he sees all this fighting, and he says, I don't care what the issue is. He, he doesn't address specifics of the quarrels. He says, I don't care about the details. I don't care who started it. It's just gotta stop, you're, you're, you're being so childish. I want you to grow mature in your faith and you're acting like children here. And what you see with James is he's not so worried about whatever conflict, whatever detail it is, that he asks about the source. He says, where does this come from? I, I, don't, I don't even care what the issue is. I want us to autopsy this thing. I want you to stop and just back up, get out of the emotion of the moment, and start asking yourself, what causes this? Why, why does this happen? How come you get sucked into these things? Why is there this conflict and this quarreling that goes on? And so, as he asks this question, what causes this, he follows up with another question. But here's the interesting thing. His follow-up question isn't really a question. It's more of a statement. I don't know if you've ever experienced that when someone asks you a question but they really don't look for the answer because they're not really asking a question. I'll tell you how this played out in our home last week. <laughs> I came home being a godly, wonderful, servant-hooded-minded husband, as I always am, and somewhere within a half hour after getting home, my, my wife asked me this question. Are you kind of grumpy today? <laughs> now, that is not a question where she says, you know, I'm stumped, I need more information. Could you help me answer this question? Actually, she doesn't want me to answer the question because it's not really a question. It's a statement. You are kind of grumpy today but you put the word R on the front end and a question mark on the back end, and it poses as a question so it's a little less offensive. <laughs> of course, I'm not grumpy today. <laughs> so James comes along and he says, hey, what causes these quarrels? And then he asks a question that is not a question. He asks a question that is a statement. He says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That's not a question, that's a statement. He's saying, wouldn't you agree? Stop for a second, pull out of the emotion of the moment. Take a look at this thing from a 30,000 foot view. Take a look at the source of this deal. Isn't it from something that's happening here? Notice this, the conflict is among you, the genesis is within you. We point to the external, but the reality is it starts here in the internal. Instead of pointing out, we ought to look within. And he says, isn't this what you're experiencing among you? Isn't it coming from something within you? And so James is he's asking about the source on this whole thing, and then he makes this statement. And this is one of those prophetic statements, these fatherly statements, and he says, let's just be real about it. He says this, you want something, but you don't get it. I mean, bottom line, the conflicts that you're experiencing is because you didn't get your way. Just, just don't get defensive. Try to think about this objectively. That's what's going on. 
You wanted something, you didn't get it. You go after something, you can't have it. And so because of that, there, there's this childlike response, and I want you to grow, I want you to mature. And in the midst of this conversation, he is, he's revealing a deeper issue. He's showing them, he, he refocuses them and reveals a deeper issue that's going on within them. What is happening right down here? It's not just what's going up there, it's revealing a deeper issue. That's your blank there. So then in, in, uh, in chapter, uh, four, uh, chapter, chapter four, verse two, he says this. He says, you want something, but you don't get it. And then he goes to the Ten Commandments. He pulls out two of the Ten Commandments. You kill and you covet. Is he talking literally here? No, I, I think figuratively, because of this, you kill relationships, you kill harmony, you kill unity, you kill peace, you know, you, you, you kill the bond of the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the family of Christ, but you covet. That one is literal. You cannot have what you, what you want, you quarrel and you fight, you covet. Coveting is the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And what's interesting about this one, and this one he's speaking very literally, if you covet, if you break the 10th commandment, it will lead you, it can lead you, to break all of the other nine. Think about that sometime on your own. Go back through, some of them you couldn't, couldn't come up with, you know, five or six of them maybe, but if you covet, it will or can lead you to break all the other nine. And he says to these people, listen, you're killing and you're coveting, you, you, you're, you're, you're going against the very 10 commandments. I want you to grow in debt, let's grow up, let's get mature here. And then he also brings in the spiritual side of things. He says, in the midst of all this, you don't even pray. I mean, he, asks, he says this, you do not have because you do not ask God. You'll fight against your brother and sister, but you'll never ask God. Have you ever thought that maybe part of the problem is that you haven't prayed? You've just gone about it in your human way? Now, I want to push pause on our, we'll come back to this, but I want to push pause to give you another insight into James. This isn't as much biblical as it is church tradition in history. This whole concept of prayer is something that James comes back to. And all of next week will be focused on that as we finish out this series, James chapter five. But it's something he mentioned in James chapter one. Any of you who are lacking wisdom, he should ask God who gives freely, generously to all without finding fault. He talks about praying for wisdom. Now he's talking about prayer again. Chapter five, he'll talk about prayer again. You think, well, of course, it's James, it's the apostle. He should talk about prayer. That's what religious leaders should do. He's not doing this because you're supposed to talk about prayer. He's saying this, and the emphasis on prayer is because it's the life that he lives. Now, I mentioned that, not, you won't find it in the Bible, but in church history, the early fathers referred to him as James the Just, James the Righteous. There was another nickname that early church fathers referred to James as. And it's maybe on the surface not so flattering, but when you begin to understand where it comes from, it's pretty impressive. James was referred to in early church writings as old camel knees. <laughs> old camel knees. Now, every couple years I go to Israel and almost every time I ride a camel. In order to get on a camel, this is the first thing that a camel will do. He will kneel down on his front knees and it's about a four step process for him to get down and, and then you get back on. But this is the first thing that a camel will do, he'll kneel down. And because of this, over the years, these knees begin to look like this. They're gnarly. They're calloused, they're rough. 
They need gold bond. It's, it's a mess. And James gets this nickname as old camel knees because reportedly he spent so much time on his knees praying in intercession that he was a man of prayer. And not just praying for his own desires and his own wants, he was praying, interceding for the church, praying that they would grow, praying that they would stay strong in the midst of persecution, praying that they would get along, praying that they would understand that they would know Christ, that he would pray over and over again so much so that his knees had become calloused and gnarly from being on his knees, praying for the church, and it is reported that when he was killed in 62 AD, when he was martyred, as they were clubbing him to death, with his dying breath, he was praying for those who were killing him just as Stephen did when he was stoned, just as his brother Jesus did hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them. So James is a man of prayer. So when he says, you you don't have because you don't ask God, he's not just giving the party line. He's saying, listen, we're to be people of prayer. We'll we'll talk about all that next week. That'll be our total focus next week. And then he follows it up in chapter, in verse uh, three, and he kind of summarizes the ones who actually do prayer, how they pray. He says this, you know, you do not ask, uh, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In one verse, he summarizes the majority of my prayer life. I don't know if anyone else would be able to say, yeah, I identify with that. Because my prayer life is a whole lot more like a wish list, like a Christmas list, like I want the Aladdin uh, genie bottle thing. Because I just want what I want. My will be done. I remember a little confession time. I remember when I was in high school and I read Psalm 37:4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I thought, I've just cracked the code. <laughs> All I have to do It was like a formula to me. Just delight myself with the Lord and whatever I want. And as a sophomore in high school, there were really two things. I thought, okay, delight myself in the Lord, and then I can get a 1979 blue Camaro Z28 with a T-top. That would be it. And there was a girl in our youth group named Rhonda. She was the Marsha Brady of our youth group. Long blonde hair, a couple years older than me. I would not only have the Camaro, but Marsha would be sitting in the seat. All I have to do is delight myself in the Lord and shazam. (laughs) Now, I know none of you would ever think along that lines. But we so often with prayer, we think it's this formula. If we can just crack the code, man, it opens up the floodgates of everything I want. And James is saying, don't you understand that those of you who actually do pray, Your prayers are so self-centered. And you just kind of look at this picture that he's painting of them. He says, look at what's going on. You're childish in your interactions with one another. You're selfish in your desires. And your prayer life is either non-existent or it's shallow. In the midst of all this, he paints this picture of these people who are really not that deep and mature in the faith. He says, I want us to grow up in, in the faith. I want us to take a look at this. He says, you know why? You know why you have these conflicts? You know why your whole desire is self-centered? You know why your prayer life is non-existent or shallow? It's a result of living a me-centered life. It's all about me. It's about my wants. It's about my desire. It's about my comfort. It's about my success. It's about my status. It's about all the things I want. 700 years before he writes this letter, 
the prophet Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 53. We all, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. See, this was like 2,700 years ago. This is the human condition. This isn't new for us. It wasn't new for James's followers. This is the human condition. I grew up in church singing that great hymn, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waited, yielded and still. Sang that hymn all the time, but my theme song was have mine own way, Lord. Have mine own way. As far as uh, waiting, yielded and still, mm -mm, mm -mm. no, I'm demanding and pacing. I'm a little impatient. But he says, listen, that's the problem is that we turned to our own way. And he's writing to these people and say, listen, don't you see how this goes? Don't you see what's going on here? Jesus comes along to this human condition and he flips the whole thing on its head. He says, listen, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, his will, his desire, his wants, his needs, for me, will find it. That's the way you're gonna find life. It's not in having it being me-focused, it's being able to give it up for God and for his purposes and for his kingdom. So he goes on. He says, I don't want you to have this, this me-centered life. And he kind of turns a little bit of a, of, a, of a corner here, but I think he goes back to their heritage. Because in, in verse 4 he says, you adulterous people. Again, I don't think he's speaking literally here. I don't think they're all, you know, having these adulterous affairs and going out on their husbands and wives. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. When he says, you adulterous people, their minds immediately go to their history. Israel was in a relationship with God. He was in a covenant relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. And every time Israel as a nation turned to their own way, every time that they strayed, every time they went to the other gods or the, the, the Baals or the idols, whenever they followed the other nations, there would be these, these words like, you have been unfaithful in this relationship, you have prostituted yourself. And so when he says, you adulterous people, they're thinking, just like our forefathers, when they strayed away from God, when they went their own way, when they were focused on their own wants and their own desires, God says, you've been unfaithful to the covenant. You've broken this, this, this marriage bond that we have. And then he goes on in these next couple of verses, there's some confusion, and I want us to just kind of really dig into this a little bit more. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Here's where some confusion comes from this a little bit. It's because you think, well, now wait a second. So what was it, John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16. That's it. For God so loved the world. But now we're supposed to not be friends with the world, but God loves the world. How, how does that play out? And, and we sang that hymn, this is my father's world. How, how does all that play out? I mean, what, how, do we, how do we justify, how do we rectify this, this tension? And when the Bible talks about the world, there's a couple ways of looking at it. One is the cosmos. It's the creation. It's what, it's what God sent his son to redeem to make all things new. But the Bible also talks about the world in and kind of like the best way I can explain it is like in your operating system, in, in a mindset, in your perspective, uh, in, in your worldview, in the way that you live your life. And it says, and when you live in a way that is focused on yourself, 
When you live in a way that is resistant to God's operating system, God's word, God's will, God's way, maybe it's resistant to that, maybe it's opposed to that, maybe even it's in hostility to that. He says, that's the world's way that takes you away from God's way. And even if it's a self-centered thing, it goes away from what God would have. And you're more about your will, your way, your word, your wants, rather than God's. And that becomes this love of the world. He says, I don't want that for you. And then he goes on, and this one's a little bit confusing too. Or do you think, uh, Scripture says without reason, and he's not quoting this specific verse, he's talking about a general theme from the law, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Many of your translations will use the word jealous here. Whatever translation you're using, it's probably more, it talks about jealousy, which again throws up this, now wait a second, I don't get this. Because the Bible never talks positively about jealousy in our lives. In fact, the acts of the sinful nature, one of those listed, jealousy. So why is it that it's okay for God to be jealous if it's not for us? And is it like, God has his feelings hurt. We have this insecure deity. Oh, him didn't have him creation worship him, so him a little jealous. That's not God. That's not how it works. What we have to understand, because this is really beautiful when you understand this, is when, God, when it talks, because in the Old Testament, again, it would talk about how God is a jealous God for his people. That when you understand about the jealousy of God, it's not that, that God is jealous that somehow he didn't get something from us that he wants or needs. He's not jealous because we're worshiping something else, we're pursuing something. It's not because he didn't get something from us. He's jealous because he wants the very best for us. He's jealous on our behalf. He's jealous over us. He's jealous that we would not settle that we would not shortchange ourselves, that we would not be satisfied with some life that is different than what he's designed and created us to live. And so he's jealous on our behalf. Does that make sense? So it's a very beautiful thing for us. Let me give you an example, an illustration. Um, and uh, let's use Pastor Brian, since he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> pastor Brian is our campus pastor in Skagit. Pastor Brian, hang in there with me. Before I heard this one. Pastor Brian, if you know Pastor Brian, those of you in Skagit know him very well. If you know Pastor Brian, there are two things that he loves. Disneyland and his family. And I'm not sure which order on these. But he loves Disneyland and tennis shoes and God because he's our pastor down there. Okay, but for the sake of the illustration, he loves Disneyland and he loves his family. This I have heard about Pastor Brian. Because he loves Disneyland, because he knows Disneyland, because he experiences Disneyland annually, if you ever go to Disneyland with Pastor Brian, he puts together a plan for your day in Disneyland. It has charts, it has graphs, it involves GPSs and time clocks and, and stopwatches and fast passes. He knows the plans he has for you in Disneyland. He wants you from start to finish to experience Disneyland in its utmost. And so he will put this thing together. He knows how it works. He's got this whole plan. Okay, that's the truth about Brian. Here's the hypothetical example. Let's say that one time he decides that he wants to have a father-son Disney experience. So he takes his young son, Dylan, 
and they're gonna go to Disneyland. As is common for Brian, he puts together the plan so that it will be an absolute full day. They will experience Disney in its fullest. It will be wonderful. They'll have this father-son time. They'll have memories that they'll take to the grave. It's gonna be a lot of fun. It's gonna be joyful. He's got this all together. He's got this plan put together. He goes and they fly to Southern California. On their way to Disneyland that morning, in the rental car, Dylan finds a little Sharpie pen. And so he pulls the cap off and he begins to paint his fingernails with a Sharpie pen. And, you know, it is what it is. Brian says, hey, Dylan, put that away. And he continues on. And then they get to the Disneyland parking lot and he's beginning to like trace out like veins and, and connecting dots on his hand and such. And Brian says, hey, put the Sharpie away. We're gonna, we've got a great day at Disneyland. We're gonna spin this together. It's gonna be wonderful. We're gonna make memories. It's gonna be, you're gonna love this. And what if at that point, Dylan says, you know what, Dad? Why don't you go on into Disneyland by yourself? I have my Sharpie pen. Why don't you just leave me here in the rental car, keep the windows down a little bit, but I'll just stay here in the car and I'll play with my Sharpie pen because I found that I really enjoy all these things that you're telling me not to do. And I want to trace all over my hands. I want to work on my jeans. I want to do all this. How sad would it be for Dylan to stay in a rental car with a Sharpie pen and forego an incredible day with his father at Disneyland? And at that point, is Brian jealous because, oh, my son likes a Sharpie pen more than he likes Disney? No, he's jealous on behalf of his son. My son is going to do this, and he thinks this is going to be wonderful, but it won't fulfill. It won't satisfy. He's going to shortchange himself. He's going to miss out on what I have planned for him. And when it says that our father is jealous for us, it's like he's saying, don't settle for a Sharpie pin scribbling on your legs and jeans and arms when I have this incredible life. The life that you're pursuing, this self-focused life, this childish life, this shallow life, this selfish you know, life that is away from God is not gonna fulfill, it's not gonna satisfy, it's not significant, and it won't last. Here's the beautiful thing. Early on in this, in this book, he writes, he's in James chapter one, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. That our heavenly Father, this is so beautiful. He loves us so much. He wants us to experience the life that he has created us to live, the good and perfect life, the beautiful life, the life that will truly fulfill and satisfy. Now, I, I look at what, what James has has written in this passage, he says, you're selfish in your interactions with one another and your conflict. You're childish there. You're selfish in your desires and it's all about what you didn't get and all this. Your prayer life is shallow. It's non-existent or it's very self-focused and it's horrible. And you're pursuing things from a worldly perspective that is not God's will, God's way, God's word. It's your own. At that point, I'd say, well, fine then. You're on your own then. Uh, enough. Go ahead then, live that way. But our loving Heavenly Father doesn't give up that quick. Look at this, so pretty, beautiful. But he gives us more grace. He gives us the very thing we don't deserve. He gives us the thing that we cannot do for ourselves. He says, I see how you're living, but I give you more grace. He says, you know, there really is only one prerequisite to receiving all the grace that God has for you. And you need to position yourself in such a manner that you can be a recipient of God's grace. 
And this time he does actually quote a Bible verse. He quotes Proverbs chapter three, verse 34. And he says this. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The pathway to grace is a downward pathway of humility. It's when we come to this point where we recognize, I have a very big problem in my life. It's when we come to the point where we realize, I am the biggest problem in my life. And come to this point where we say, and I can't fix the biggest problem in my life. When we get to that point, that's the humility that opens up the floodgates for the grace of God to just pour over our lives. See, grace, the grace of God, is not for the do-it-yourselfer, not on a spiritual level. The grace of God is not available to the one who says, I got this one covered, I'm gonna work a little harder, I got this one figured out. The grace of God is for the one who says, I desperately need someone bigger than myself. That God would give his grace, but the path to that grace is found in humility. You know, I, I reference this quite often because it's, it's one of my favorite passages out of Philippians chapter two, that, that picture of, of Jesus. It says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, this position of incredible authority, made himself nothing, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That while he has this position of authority, he takes the posture of humility. And Gerald Hawthorne, in his commentary on Philippians, he says, you know, that whole being in very nature God, we read that like, despite the fact that he was God, he did this. In spite of all that, he does this. He says, maybe we ought to read it this way. Precisely because he is in very nature God, he humbles himself. It's the beautiful life of Jesus Christ. It's what he's called us to. And so James goes on, he says, so submit yourselves then to God. Like, like Jesus did. When he said, not my will, but your will be done. When, when Jesus would say, I want to follow your way. I want to follow your word. I want to follow your will. And not only that, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Like Jesus did. By saying, I'm going to follow God's word. I'm going to follow his way. I'm going to go with his will. And come near to God. Go back, please. Come near to God, and he will come near to you like Jesus did. He says, don't you understand? The way you're living right now in these childish relationships, in these selfish desires, in this shallow prayer life, in this operating system that is apart from God, that is not what God has created you to live. That, that is settling for a Sharpie drawing on your arm. He says, submit yourself to God. Repent. Resist the devil in his ways. Draw near to God. And then he goes on and he talks about this repentance of, of turning away from those things and then turning toward God. And in verse 10, he says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Any, any of you remember singing this in the 70s? A little round. Humble yourself in the side of the... Humble yourself in the side of... And he, and he will, lift, will lift you up. Higher. Anyone at all? Yeah. Okay, all right. We're not going to sing it. I just sang it for you. That's where that came from. 
All right, you just thought it was some Maranatha song. All right. He says, humble yourself. Notice what he doesn't say. Pray for humility. No, we're never told to pray for humility. Humility is a gift of the Spirit. No, it's not. It's a choice that you and I make every single day. And when you begin to get all full of yourself and you're comparing because you're better or you're more spiritual than everybody, he says, come before the Lord. Don't compare yourself to other people. Humble yourself before the Lord. In that passage in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name of his above every name. He says that's how God operates. When we humble ourselves before him, when we're obedient to him, when we follow his word, his will, his way, then he will exalt us, just like he did with Jesus. This is the life that I want you to live. And the one prayer that will always be answered is a humble cry for grace. It's a humble cry saying, God, I need your grace to humble yourself. I mean, you look at this, and he sees these people that he prays for, he's on his knees for. He says, the way you interact is so childish, that's not what you were called and created to be. The desires that drive your life are so self-focused. Your prayer life, if it exists, is shallow and ineffective. The operating system that you're living by is not of God. You're coloring your arms with a Sharpie. And our God is jealous on your behalf that you would live in his grace you would experience his life, that your relationships would reflect a maturity that's found in Christ, that your desires would become the desires of God, that your prayer life would be intercession for one another, and that your operating system would be along God's will, God's way, and God's word, that we would follow this life that he's created us to live. He says, so humble yourself. That's where it starts. Humble yourself before the Lord.